This episode is made possible by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, working to build a more healthy, just, and inclusive future for everyone at czi.org. This is an incredibly difficult time for many of our residents. COVID-19 has shaken just about every industry across the nation and the globe. Well, the message is don't panic, but it's also, it's understandable that you have the sense of fear. You know, fear of, of plague, fear of disease. Isn't... Our lives in the U.S. have been turned upside down by the coronavirus. My name is Lisa Desjardins. I'm a reporter. And right now I am recording, for example, in a nearly empty U.S. Capitol. Listen to this. Hello! Yeah, there's nobody here. Nobody even within earshot. Most of my colleagues are working from home. Some of them listening to me record this over a phone line. Over these past few weeks, a new normal has set in for all of us, and it does not feel normal. Even as the market shifts from day to day, the coronavirus is slowing our economy to a near standstill. I have never sensed a greater sense of uncertainty, a greater fear of the future. All of us are very much still figuring out what life in social isolation looks like. My biggest question is how long? How long is this going to really go on? It's all moving really fast. That's why we want to take a step back and ask ourselves, how did we get here? And what do we do now? This is America Interrupted from the PBS NewsHour. To start, we wanted to understand the how, how this virus managed to spread around the world. Pandemics are really a product of our 21st century lifestyle. That is disease ecologist Peter Daszak. He runs an organization called EcoHealth Alliance. And the thing is, he's been studying viruses in China for more than a decade. Yeah, I'm recalling now, so you've got a, a bit of wasted time at the beginning. I spoke with him earlier this week. You know, I think my first question is about how most of the modern world is dealing with this in, its, in their space. It's sort of like this invader that's come into our stores, our conference rooms. It, it feels like part of the modern world, but you go to where the viruses are born. Can you take us to that place, paint a picture of where that is? Yeah, we, we know pretty clearly where this virus came from, the one that causes COVID-19. It's probably a bat origin virus. It probably emerged in southwest China or in one of the neighboring countries. And we found about 300 related coronaviruses in bats in China. And, you know, the bats carry these viruses. It, they don't seem to cause any disease in them. And when we go to rural China, we go to these beautiful countrysides with limestone caves. And we see um, horseshoe bats in, on the roof of the cave. And they're the ones that carry the virus naturally. Hmm. You've been taking samples from hundreds of bats, hundreds of different versions of the coronavirus for years. Yeah. And I think what what's interesting is how does it move from those bats to us? How do how does someone in this case it seems someone in China become patient zero for a disease that's in bats? It, it does seem really strange when when I sit here in New York and we're on almost lockdown now because of a bat origin virus uh, on the other side of the planet. And 
really it's all about the pathways that we create for these viruses to spread. So, you know, these um, viruses have been in bat populations for probably millions of years. And, and every now and again, it's possible that people get exposed to them. You know, you think about rural life in China, a farmer um, working outside a bats up in the roof of a um, house, or he goes in a cave to shelter from the rain, and the bat urinates or defecates, and he happens to get his meal contaminated and then gets infected. I mean, these are really rare events, but there are so many people now mm. doing this so often that these things get amplified and the risk becomes higher. Now, the virus can infect one or two people, but for it to become a global pandemic, it's got to spread. And what it seems to have happened in this case is somehow it got into the wildlife trade, the wildlife markets in south and central China, this huge network of people buying and selling live animals. And either the virus got from bats to one of the animals or directly into people, they went to the market and spread it among other people there. And it became what we now know as COVID-19. It seems like the world is expressing a lot of surprise, obviously over the limits on human life that are happening because of this, but yeah. even that there could be this kind of pandemic. But you have actually been warning about this for years. How how did you see this coming? How did you know there could be something that would spread like this globally, not just in China or regionally, but something that could be this kind of danger to the world from the place that you study? It's, it, it's true. It's kind of... Um you know, it's, to us, it's just common sense and it's logic. And, and we use science to try and do the math on it and say, what's the likelihood of this virus versus that virus or this place versus that place being the origin of a new pandemic? And um, it turns out that most pandemics originate in certain regions around the world. We call them emerging disease hotspots. China's right in the middle of one of those. Um, bats carry more um, zoonotic viruses, viruses that can get into people than any other known mammal group. So a bat virus is a likely target. And we've been tracking across these hotspots different viruses in wildlife and saying which one of those is most likely to emerge. Coronaviruses are really good at jumping from one host to another. They mutate rapidly, and some of those mutants can then infect different species and spread. So it, to us, it's common sense that, that this was one of the viruses that became a global pandemic. I like how you say common sense, because I think this is something pretty uncommon to a lot of people. But when you talk about it, it makes sense. And then you also go the next step and talk about why more of this may be happening now. And it's because of us, right? What, what's going on? Yeah, um, we, we are the cause of pandemics. It's, um, it's, it's quite ironic in a way. Um, you know, pandemics are really a product of our 21st century lifestyle. We've colonized the planet. We've um, overrun the planet with our own species. Um, we're the, the most dominant animal on the planet. We're everywhere. We're in every remote area. Uh, we're building roads into new mountainous forests. So we're coming across new species of wildlife and we're coming across their viruses too. Um, it's absolutely mathematical certainty that we're going to see more and more of these unless we change that risk. Um, and, you know, I think that if we look at pandemics as a risk of doing our everyday business on the planet, maybe we'll start to think about ways to protect against that risk and not just have them emerge and then hope we can get a vaccine. Wait, you're talking about a universal vaccine that would 
pr- protect us from all of these viruses. Yeah, and it's not, it's not just a fantasy. I mean, there is a universal vaccine program for flu. We know that flu has different strains every season, and sometimes we're developing vaccines to last season's flu, and it's not very effective this season. So the, the universal flu vaccine is, is a strategy to have one vaccine that works against as many strains as possible. Now, for coronaviruses, there's been a lot of work looking at SARS and developing vaccines for SARS. Well, why don't we go and find out what other viruses are out there, closely related, and design a vaccine against all of them instead of just one target? Because we don't know which one's going to pop up next. It, is anyone talking about doing that, though? I, I, is that a resource question? Because there, there are oh, so... But it, we don't even have vaccine for the ones that you have identified. Yeah, it's definitely a resource question. It's a willingness question more than anything. I mean, we have the resources to fight terrorism. We've spent billions of dollars hunting down terrorist cells, listening to people's phone calls. And before the attack, we send in the drones. Um, We don't do that with pandemics. We don't spend the money listening to where the viruses are in wildlife. We don't go out to the communities and say, are they getting exposed? And we just wait for them to happen. That's the wrong approach. And, and, you know, I get it. We, we can just funnel all our money into vaccines and drugs for the known pathogens. And it's risky to spend billions looking for other pathogens and finding them and, and, and hoping you've got the one that could emerge. But look at the cost of this pandemic. Trillions of dollars off the stock market, hundreds of billions of dollars in actual economic loss and a complete disruption of everybody's lives. Right. Congress is talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars just in direct funding and it's not clear that's going to be enough and that's money that could have gone to prevent this whole crisis um but you know it's interesting you're talking about a vaccine uh that would help keep us safe on the back end but you also mentioned this is because of the 21st century lifestyle what about that front end i mean what's happening to try and prevent the spillover of, of these diseases and, and sort yeah. of a, a, a mankind's role at the beginning here. Exactly right. I mean, I think that we, we fall into a sort of um, problem. You know, scientists do this as well. We, we're enamored by the, the molecular approach to things, that we're going we're gonna to design something clever that will stop these viruses. When actually, probably, a, a really easy way to do this is to do simple things like don't eat bats. I mean, bats are, are consumed all across Southeast Asia, parts of Africa, parts of Latin America. They're a free source of protein for, for a hunter. Um, but they're a high risk. And we could educate people about the risk. We could talk to them about alternatives. We could put some pressure on the wildlife trade uh, legally. We could police the laws that we've already got for it. And we could reduce that risk. Um, we can work with local communities on the front line in these rural areas that are exposed and test them. We can, you know, talk to them about their risky behaviours and make sure that they understand and then take samples and say, are they getting exposed? Mm -hmm. It costs money, but ultimately the return on investment will be huge if we can prevent pandemics. Are you getting more interest in that now because of this pandemic or is the world just in crisis mode right now? Is there more talk to you? Are people asking you? Yeah, you're right. We, We definitely get more interest in this approach during a pandemic. But it, that's, that's kind of part of the problem. Um, I want to see what interest we're going to have in funding programs to stop people doing risky behaviours in two years from now when the pandemic's a memory or in five years from now. You know, if it's 15 years between SARS and COVID-19 and, and we've lost interest in developing the vaccines and drugs, that's a problem. 
We have a short memory and we, we're reactive instead of proactive. And that's a human nature issue. And when, when you go to a politician and say, we need you to fund big programs to reduce the risk, and the product of that will be nothing happens. We won't get a pandemic. No one will know you were successful. That's a hard sell to a politician. So I think we, we need to face up to that problem. It's the public health problem. Prevention is a tough sell, but it's so effective and so cost effective. Where do you think this outbreak is headed right now? What, what's ahead in the near term? Yeah, um, well, I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, I didn't think it would go this far. I think most of us were surprised by how quickly it escaped from its origin. You know, within a couple of weeks, SARS took two to three months, this one two weeks, the next one maybe two days. You know, part of that is the way it spreads with asymptomatic carriers and mimicking other diseases. Part of it is... It's just, you know, the, the exponential growth in air travel in the last 15 years, particularly around Southeast Asia. Um, it's, it's a global disease now. It's a pandemic. Um, the U.S. is just ramping up in the number of cases. We're going to see really huge numbers of cases here. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a shame because these things, you know, we can't guarantee that they're preventable, but we could do so much more to try and stop them before they emerge. Peter Daszak... Thank you for thinking about this and working on this. Um, zoologist, eco-health advocate, we appreciate your time. My pleasure. Be safe and be healthy. You too. Santanam. There you go. Okay, good. Oh, good. All right, cool. Hey, awesome. Yahtzee. Cool. <laughs> All right, yeah. cool. That's Laura Santanam. She is our digital health and data producer, I sat down with her, well, sort of sat down with her, to answer some of your questions about the coronavirus. Okay, so I'm glad we're here. And by here, I mean you are in one place and I am in another because we are dealing with a crisis. And I know I'm not the only one that has questions for you. Take me through what you've been doing with our viewers here. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, we put out a call in recent days and received hundreds of questions from our viewers. And yeah, this is top of mind for so many people across the country right now. That's really cool. I know you're sitting working from home and you're getting questions from people also working from home. The number one, it looks like, this is a question I personally spend a lot of time thinking about. I'm not a germaphobe, but this question is from Stacy from Seattle. Mm -hmm. And her question is, how long does the virus remain transmissible on various surfaces? <laughs> you know, we're supposed to stay away from each other. We're going to get to that in a second. But Laura, what about all these surfaces in our lives? So a recent study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine says that the virus can survive uh, on hard surfaces such as plastic and stainless steel for up to 72 hours. And it, it could uh, survive on cardboard for up to 24 hours. So yeah, that's that's not heartening I just, information. I'm having a reaction to that. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm pulling away from the table <laughs> that is in front of me right now. I mean, is that something we should worry about, Laura, all of these surfaces? I know I feel like the germaphobes in the world, we're not helping them right now with this moment. But do we should we be wiping down surfaces more knowing this or is this normal for viruses? It's definitely something that we need you know, to keep in mind. The CDC right now, their guidance is that like other viruses, it is possible for this virus to survive on surfaces and objects. For that reason, it's, it's important to wipe down surfaces, keeping things in your in your space clean yeah basically don't touch stuff don't touch people don't touch stuff 
Right. It's kind of hard to get used to, but that's basically where we're at. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you also raised another big question for people. I think folks are just starting to deal with this, even people in our newsroom. This question is from a woman named Rachel, who's from Woodland Hills, California. So my question is, what advice could you give to me about how to politely convince my 76-year-old mom who lives in Medford, Oregon, and has a very active social life, that she should curtail some of her social activities with her friends that she's used to seeing almost every day. And most of them are in her age group. This is such a great question, Laura. My mom, I just had a moment with her the other night because she snuck off to get a hamburger. And I was a little mad at her. I was like, come on, mom. (laughs) What do you say? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's, it's really hard. The only thing that we can do right now, um, because we don't have a vaccine, we don't have medication that's specifically designed to combat this virus, is social distancing. So sorry to break it to your mom, but that's that's what we got to do. So my question to you is, if you're not staying home, if you're going, if you're doing conducting business, Do you want to stay how far away from the other people around you? Like two arms distance, I've heard. And also, do you want to open doors for people or is that no longer polite? Do you want to just nobody (laughs) – don't open doors for people. You're getting too close. I know. I know. It's it's really tough. So the guidance from CDC, WHO and and is that we need to stay at least six feet away, six feet away from people. Um, And we recently conducted a poll with Marist and NPR just to sort of see to what degree Americans are practicing social distancing in their day-to-day lives. And what we heard back was, you know, 43% of Americans say that they're eating at home more often. You know, 30% said that they've changed their travel plans. 48% said that they've canceled plans in order to avoid crowds. And 33% have changed their work routine. So, you know, maybe they're doing telework or, again, staying away from people who they don't live with. But according to the epidemiologists and infectious disease experts and and just they're all saying that all of us have to be doing our part and you know we're months away from a vaccine and this is what we've got in order to protect people who are older people who have pre-existing medical conditions who are particularly vulnerable to this virus this is what we have to help them and to prevent our healthcare system from getting overwhelmed yeah there's so many weird side effects of this but one of them in my life from social distancing is I'm even more happy to like hug my husband. I'm yeah. like, you're the you're the person. Yeah. You're the one person yeah. I can hug. So I'm gonna do like I think I'm hugging him. Like he's freaked out. He's like, why stop hugging me? Like I know, I, I get it. No, no. It, <laughs> so it is that is so true. Yeah. But this does bring a question that's prominent in my mind uh, that somebody else raised as well. This is Bill from Williamsburg, Virginia. What is the appropriate medical advice for caring for our children, uh, dealing with questions about schools being closed or open? and also uh, controlling the spread of the disease. Thanks. Laura, you are a mom. I am a mom. <laughs> what do we tell our kids? Oh, man, it's, it's a great question, Lisa. I mean, it's something that I've been wrestling with just in the last several days, you know, we're... Or hour, uh, probably, yeah, well, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, that is that is no <laughs> lie. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely in the throes of this, you know, great experiment in homeschooling that just thousands and thousands of families are finding themselves in right now as a result of this virus. And, you know, um, we recently had a great parenting advice piece from Wendy Thomas Russell that sort of lists out several 
great tips that parents should, you know, I'm listening. Should I lean want to hear it. Yes. So I guess number one, just coming right out of the gate, she says, you know, make children feel safe. In her own words, you know, she says, we're battling two enemies here. One is COVID-19. The other is anxiety about COVID-19. And another thing is just to, to give them facts let, and let them lead the discussion yeah. about what, you know, what mm-hmm. does this, what does this virus mean? Why can't I see my friends right now? Why can't I go to school? Mm-hmm. You know, cause that, I've definitely been hearing that. Um, so those are all, those are all great questions and we should give kids honest answers and at the same time watching our tone, watching how, um, you know, cause kids definitely feed off, you know, the energy that we're giving them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make sure kids feel safe to give them expectations. Um, Our last question is another really good one. This is from Teresa from Brooklyn. About 12 days ago, I got sick with a very sore throat, which eventually turned into a fever of 102, which lasted for about five days. I went to the ER on uh, Monday at the advice of my primary physician and here in Brooklyn and, um, was isolated and tested for flu and tested for strep and tested for bacterial infections and came up negative on all of them, but still couldn't get a test for COVID-19. I'm currently in self-isolation and still having difficulty breathing. I'm on steroids and an inhaler. And so I guess my question is, are there any possibilities for getting antibody testing or will we ever really know the true number of infections here in the U.S.? Thank you. So, Laura, will we ever know the full extent of what this virus has done in our lives? Well, I mean, it's a great question from Teresa, and I hope she feels better soon. As far as knowing the full extent of this virus that's been a huge part of the problem in this country in particular that epidemiologists, infectious disease experts I've talked to have all been telling me is, you know, if we want to be able to measure how big a problem the novel coronavirus is in this country, we have to be able to test. We have to be able to have enough diagnostic tests so that you can see mm. where where it is, when it is, and, and be able to respond adequately with, with, with resources. I mean, it's that's why a lot of the numbers that we hear uh, have been criticized as far as, you know, how many cases there I mean, are. It feels like someone someone could have had the virus, gotten over the virus, and never have known at this point. And that's that's part of a, of a big problem when when we're trying to figure out, you know, okay, what all do we need to help people? What all does the health system need in order to be able to respond? And, and even just figuring out where people are so they can do as Teresa's doing, you know, self-isolate when they recognize that they're not feeling mm-hmm. well. Another complication for this virus is that it's coinciding with, you know, flu season. And so people may be writing off some of their symptoms, right. maybe saying, oh, this is, this right. is you know, because they yeah. can't test for the novel coronavirus, they may be not taking the right kind of precautions in order to stifle this pandemic. Well, Laura, thank you for giving us at least truthful answers or not. There aren't easy answers on this one, but um, I really appreciate it. What are you off to do next at your home office oh, man. there? <laughs> well, um, just <laughs> rounding up some interviews while also rounding up my yep. two kids. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a brave new world we're all living in right now. That's cool. Great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Laura Santana, I'm so proud to work with you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Laura Santanam for joining us. And 
thanks to all of you for joining us on this podcast. You can follow all the NewsHour coverage, every last bit of it, and there is a lot on our website, pbs.org slash NewsHour. We will keep answering your questions. I know we will keep asking a lot of questions. Tune into our broadcast special, Confronting Coronavirus, which you can stream now on our website. That's pbs.org slash NewsHour. This episode was produced in several living rooms and unusual workspaces by Vika Aronson and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. We had production assistance from Maya Lene Bura and Bella Isaacs. Special thanks to Travis Daub, Vanessa Dennis, and James Williams. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. <laughs>